Church, good morning. morning. It's good to see you. It is so exciting to be a part of what God is doing in human history. And what God is doing in human history is using everyday, undeserving people like you and me to advance the Great Commission. There is no greater thrill than that. A couple of things before I launch here. Number one, um, towards the end, we'll be doing communion, so be in preparation for that as we uh, partake of the bread and the cup and reflect on the sin-bearing death of Christ in our place. Number two, um, I, I want to ask you to continue to pray for the three things I mentioned last week. Uh, number one, uh, for awakening. Number two, for spiritual renewal. And number three, for transformation. And what I mean is, is number one, uh, by awakening, uh, I want you to pray every single week that, that we would be awakened anew and afresh to the glory and beauty of Christ from his word. The strongest churches in the world are those who are infatuated with Jesus Christ from his word. Number two, for spiritual renewal. Uh, renewal to uh, embark on the Great Commission in a new and fresh way, that, that all of you would feel the weight of the fact that you here in this room and those overseas serving as missionaries, that you have the exact same mission. It looks different. You need a passport to do that, but we are all on the Great Commission here. So be praying for spiritual renewal for you and for the church. And then number three, for transformation. And the only thing that can transform our lives is the Word of God. It is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. So please be praying for awakening, for renewal, and transformation. And speaking of prayer, I, I very much need God's help one more time. So if you don't mind, I'm going to pray once more, and then we launch. Oh, Lord, the Sunday gathering is so massive. There's so much at stake here, Lord, happening in the next few moments not because me or anyone else here is particularly important. None of us here are, are, um, are, 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 are well-known or we, we will all be forgotten by history, O oh Lord. And yet what's about to happen, O oh Lord, is the proclamation of your word through your slave to your slaves. And so I'm asking, O oh Lord, that your word, O oh Lord, would come forth in power and force, and a clarity, and authority, and accuracy, and urgency, and intensity, and a sense of drama and suspense. I pray, O Lord, that you would help me preach as a dying man to dying men. I pray, O Lord, that you would meet with us, O Christ, in this hour, that you would meet with us, that you would minister to us through your word, and that you would transform your people profoundly and effectually through the proclamation of your word. We trust it, O Lord, as the instrument that you use to sanctify and to satisfy your people, always and only for the glory of Christ alone, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, everyone agrees that when it comes to leadership, leaders should be great. But you see, the problem is not everyone's in perfect agreement as to what it is that makes a great leader. Which raises the question, doesn't it? What is it exactly that makes a great leader? I mean, it's an, it's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because, because every single person has an opinion. 
I mean, I'm sure it's no surprise to you that there are thousands of conferences every year on leadership, tens of thousands of books published every year on, on leadership. There's conferences and seminars and degrees and training in leadership every single year. I mean, it is almost out of control. And yet what that tells us is that the world is really, really desperate to have someone lead them. I mean, to really lead them. To where exactly and to what? I'm not entirely sure. But the world is very anxious to follow someone somewhere to something that is better. And yet, and yet, obsessed though the world may be with leaders and leadership, the sheer glut of material out there tells us that the world still actually hasn't found what it's looking for. I mean, to be sure, the world is infatuated with dynamic personalities. CEO, visionary type motivational speaker guys who have confidence and charisma and creativity and swagger. I mean, you want leaders who are well-spoken and persuasive and educated. You need those who can win friends and influence people. And of course, it doesn't hurt to be well-dressed and attractive, right? I mean, that's what a good leader is. Or is it? Is that what a good leader is? Who, who decides that? Who is it that defines exactly what a leader is to be and to do? To whom do we look to lead us exactly on what authentic leadership actually is? Who decides that? I've got an idea. How about the one who is leading the entire universe? How about the one who leads a global sovereign empire with invincible power? How about the one who is leading us to the springs of eternal life and to the everlasting joy of an invincible kingdom? Do you think he wants to weigh in on what a leader is? Do you think he has anything meaningful to contribute to the conversation? Oh, I think he does. And he does, in fact, weigh in on what a leader is to do in the pages of Holy Scripture. And what he says, get this now, is that when it comes to leaders in the local church, which is the most priceless entity on the face of the planet, by the way, when it comes to leaders in the local church, you had better be picky and you had better be choosy. Because leaders in the church are called to lead the church in the most loving and dangerous cause in the universe called the Great Commission, which tells us if you want to be a church that changes the world, and you should want that, then you should want the kinds of leaders in the church that God says should be in the church. And speaking of being a church that changes the world, that's, that's exactly why we're going through Paul's letter to Titus. Why? Because that's the very kind of church that Titus is designed to produce. I mean, everything you have ever imagined in your wildest imagination, this church to be, everything you have ever desired this church to be, I just want you to know you can have that. Everything you have ever imagined to take place at this church, you can have it, you can have it all. It is theirs for the taking. But what you need, however, at minimum, are the essential components found in Paul's letter to Titus first. Which is really ironic, isn't it, that Titus has that kind of power? 
It's really ironic because what is Titus other than a, a three-chapter letter written 2,000 years ago in a totally different culture, 6,300 miles away in the Greek language, centuries before NASA ever put their first man on the moon? I mean, what, what could Titus possibly have to offer the 21st century church with all of its challenges and complexities? What does it have to offer? I'll tell you what it has to offer. Everything. Absolutely Everything. Because the thing about Paul's letter to Titus is that what it is, is the blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, whether planting a new church, whether resurrecting a dead church or uh, nursing a sickly church back to health, Titus is the raw materials that you use to do that. And what's really interesting is that the very first item on the list that Paul says you need for a healthy church, get this now, are God-centered, Bible-saturated, Christ-exalting leaders in the church, and he calls them elders. Elders. And, and they're not priests They're not ministers, they're not clergy, they're not bishops, a council, or a board. No, they are pastors, they are shepherds. Shepherds who labor in the trenches, in the grime of life, and their job is to help you be godly, and to love Christ, and to fight sin, and to do whatever it is they gotta do to help you live a life that puts Jesus Christ on display. That is an elder. And that's exactly what the next three sermons in Titus are all about, are about leaders, shepherds who labor in the trenches. Because if we're going to be a healthy church that causes ripple effects into eternity, then we had better darn well know what it is that elders in the church are to be and to do. That's where we're going. The stakes are high here. So here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text five observations Five observations about elders that are indispensable. Five observations about elders that are indispensable if this church is going to be a church that changes the world. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want. I want this church to change the world. So I want to look at five observations about elders that are indispensable. Now, before we do that, before we look at even one of those observations, you you cannot forget what Paul is doing in this letter. Do you remember what he's doing? See, because what Paul is doing is that he is laying out for Titus and for us the schematics, the architecture, the blueprints for a healthy church, And again, notice he's got several things in this letter that he says you need to be a church like that. But the very first thing on the list he says that you need are leaders and not just any leaders, not just anyone with a pulse. No, you need very particular kinds of leaders and he calls them elders and elders in the local church have very specific and precise qualifications, 15 of them to be exact. And it's in verses six through nine where Paul gives us every single one of those qualifications. And and we get the concept of being qualified, right? We get the concept of qualifications. You apply for the job of a sushi chef, but you don't like sushi and you've never tasted sushi and you're afraid of knives, you are unqualified for the job. You apply for the job of a CEO, but you've never taken a business class and you've never owned a business, well, then you are unqualified for the position. 
So we get qualifications. That, that's just how the, the economy functions. And in the exact same way, to be an elder, there are qualifications. You have to be qualified. And every single one of those qualifications are found in verses 6 through 9. And in the coming weeks, we are going to look at every single one of them. And so we need to get to the bottom of what it is that elders in the church are to be and to do, which is exactly where Paul goes in verses 5 through 9. So look where Paul begins in verse 5. Look at the text. He says, For this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete. Why? In order that you should set in order the things which remain and you should appoint elders in every city just like I commanded. Now you remember, you remember, let's back up a little bit. You remember that one or two years before Paul wrote this letter, he was in Italy state penitentiary doing a hard time in the clink for the gospel. As soon as he's released on parole, immediately he grabs Titus and they book a flight for the island of Crete, planting churches, preaching the gospel. And a year later, a year after they get there, for whatever reason, Paul had to leave and he had to leave Titus alone by himself to finish the work. And yet he doesn't leave him high and dry. What he does is that he, he uh, sends in the mail the very letter that you have in your Bibles at this very moment called Paul's letter to Titus. And that letter is blueprints for a healthy church. And and notice in verse 5, Paul gives two reasons that explain what he left Titus on the island of Crete to do. Again, look very carefully at what he says. For this reason, Titus, I left you behind on Crete. Why? Number one, so that you would put in order the things which remain. Number two, that you would appoint elders in every city or church. So you see the two reasons, the two tasks that Paul gave Titus to do. The first reason is very massive and general and big picture. The second is very particular and precise and specific. First, Paul tells Titus that his marching orders are literally to set in order the things which remain or the things which are lacking. In other words, there were all sorts of leaks and gaps and loose ends in those churches that they planted. And Titus's job was to plug the leaks and fix the gaps and tie up the loose ends. In other words, when Paul says, put in order the things which remain, he means the things which remain are anything that prevent a church from being most fully effective for the Great Commission. And every church has those things. This church has those things. So we need to commit right now to work together as a church, to work together as a family, that whenever we identify those things that hinder our mission, that we do whatever it takes to change those things, if and even if it means we change something that the church has done for decades. I don't have anything in mind particularly, but I'm just saying. But notice again the second task that Paul gave Titus to do, not only to fix everything as a whole, but even very particularly to appoint elders in every church. We're talking about leadership here. We're talking about shepherds 
appointed by God, who labor in the trenches of life, who help their people live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. That's what we're talking about. And there are five really crucial observations about elders that you have to see, which brings us to observation number one. The selection of elders. A selection of elders. That's my first point. The selection of elders. Look what Paul says. For this reason, I left you behind in Crete, Titus, so that you would appoint elders in every city, in every church. You hear that? Appoint elders, Titus. And that word appoint literally means put them in charge. Acts 7.10 says that Joseph was appointed the governor over Egypt. Same word. Hebrews 5.1 in chapter 7 verse 28 says that high priests were appointed as leaders over Israel. Exact same word. The point is elders are called to lead. They are called to govern. They are called to rule. They are called to be in charge. They are called to lead with love and grace to be sure but they are called to lead nevertheless. And and here's the question. Have you ever considered why leaders in the church are called elders? I mean, they're called other things too, pastors and shepherds and overseers. But but, but clearly, elders is one of the terms God wants leaders in the church to be known. So, So does the word elder have any significance for us whatsoever? And it does have significance. This is not an arbitrary title. You see, here's what's interesting about the term elder in Greek. The the term in Greek is presbuderos. Presbuderos. And the term literally means, get this now, older ones. That's what the term means. Not old, older ones. And what that means is that is that not that it means that the only men who can serve as elders are retired or senior citizens, although they are certainly eligible too. In fact, get this now, age isn't even necessarily the issue at all. Rather, the issue is, get this, the issue is maturity. The issue is spiritual maturity. In other words, the title of elder assumes a level of Christ-exalting maturity and purity and holiness that everyone can see and has seen for years, regardless of their age, necessarily. Because again, youthful zeal, passion, Knowledge, savvy, ability, confidence, being a gifted speaker and a dynamic personality, those things by themselves do not an elder make. Magnetism and maturity are not the same thing. Having charisma does not make you qualified to lead the church. And you might say, well, what, what, what does qualify you to lead the church? What kinds of things should an elder have? Well, I'll tell you, things like zeal, for the glory of Christ. Things like an insatiable appetite for his word. Things like a hunger for holiness. Things like a love for the church. Things like a passion for lost people. Those are the makings of an elder. The question is, men in this room, young, old, or somewhere in between, could that possibly be you? Could you possibly be an elder at this church one day? Because I am officially asking you 
to consider that. Either full-time pastoral ministry like me or the loving labor of a volunteer elder, I am asking the men of this church to consider or at the very least to consider in the future serving as an elder in this church for the Great Commission. I'm not asking you to sign a contract yet. I'm just asking you to at least pray about the possibility of serving as an elder one day in the future in this church. And if you're interested in exploring that possibility or if you're at very least interested in exploring the possibility of growing in godliness, Starting in April, I am inviting the men, all of the men, any of the men in this church to meet with me. We're going to meet every single week. And I want to do in this church what Titus did in his church. I want to appoint elders. So if you're interested in that, let's talk after service. Details to come. But that brings us to observation number two. The plurality of elders. The plurality of elders. Of elders, because look again at verse five. Look very carefully. Titus, for this reason, I left you behind in Crete. Why? So that you would appoint elders in every city, just as I commanded. Notice elders, plural. That is not an insignificant detail. Do you know why? Because get this, there is not one, I repeat, there is not one single text in the entire New Testament that describes a single solitary pastor on his own by himself leading the church by himself. There is not one text in the New Testament that exists that describes that model of doing church. Rather, what we see is something profoundly different. For instance, Acts 14.23, they appointed elders in every church. Acts 20.17, Paul called the elders of the church from Miletus. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. James 5.15, if anyone among you is sick, let him call the elders of the church. 1 Peter 5.1, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God. Do you see? Church is singular. Elders are plural. Which tells us that for the health of the church and the glory of Christ, and for the good of your own souls. The leadership responsibilities in the local church are never, ever, ever to be placed only upon one mere man alone, but the elders together in the church lead their church as, key word, a plurality. Now, don't misunderstand. Um, although all elders are equal and they have the exact same qualifications. There, there is this dynamic where at times there is a leader among leaders, a leader among equals, one who leads the team of elders. Usually it's the guy called to preach and lead and give vision and strategy. Someone, however imperfect I may be, someone kind of like me, for instance. But you have to understand that guy is not the high priest or the pope or the boss of the church, and the elders are not his subordinate rubber stampers. No, because churches are led by elders. And that is who Titus was to appoint in every church. Which makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Why you would have a team of elders leading the church rather than one solitary man by himself alone leading the church. I mean, it makes, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's the old parable of the, the blind man and the elephant, right? Remember that parable? 
Individually, they could feel the separate parts of the elephant, but on their own, they had no idea what it is that they were, that they were dealing with. They needed the collective perspective of all the blind men to figure out what it is exactly they were dealing with. The point is, elders, leaders have blind spots. And so to have a healthy church, you need the self-corrective model of multiple elders leading the church. And, and if you think about it, the insane genius of having multiple elders is obvious, isn't it? It's totally obvious. Whereas solo pastors get burnout, elder teams share the load. Whereas solo pastors can abuse their power, elder teams keep each other humble and accountable. Whereas solo pastors, they can't possibly get to all the sheep on their own. Multiple shepherds can feed and care for the flock. Whereas solo pastors, they never have all the tools they need to help a church be healthy. Multiple elders can compensate for his weaknesses. Do you see? It just makes sense. Which means, if you want this church to be everything you've ever imagined and dreamed it could be, then that means you need to pray every single week for your elders. I'm not even kidding. We, like we, I'm begging you. We really, really need you to pray every single week for us, for wisdom, for holiness, for doctrinal purity. I mean, if you want to be shepherded in the way you ought to be shepherded, if you want to be led in the way you want to be led, if you want to be loved in the way you want to be loved, we implore you for the sake of Christ, pray for your elders. Which, of course, could raise the question, right? Do we really need elders? I mean, is this, is this really the design for the church? I mean, I mean, why this? Do we really have to have elders? And that brings us to observation number three. The non-negotiability of elders. The non-negotiability of elders. Because someone could raise the question, okay, well, what about Baptists? What about Quakers? What about, what about Congregationalists? They don't do the elder thing. So do we really need elders? Well, let's look at the text. Look at verse 5. For this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete. Why? In order that you would appoint elders in every city, here it is, just as I commanded you to do. You see? Paul didn't say, appoint elders, Titus, or... Oh, whatever you think is best. Or appoint elders, or whatever the congregation wants. Or appoint elders, or, uh, you know, whatever's most culturally relevant. No, no, this was a command. Paul commanded elders and not something else to be appointed. Not priests, not bishops, not reverends, not a committee, but elders, pastors, shepherds officially appointed leaders who give their lives to lead and preach and teach and shepherd the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Elders and not something else are God's design for the church. And, and that word command is very interesting. It goes back all the way to the days when, uh, of the beginning of the Roman occupation 
That term was a term used by the Roman armies. It has military connotations of both urgency and authority. The point is, elders leading the church is not a matter of multiple choice. It is the only choice to lead the church. (laughs) At which point someone could say, okay, come on, Jared, really? (laughs) Yeah, that's a bit strong. Don't you think? I mean, I mean, is this, do, do you really think that, that that's, I mean, this is just Paul's opinion. I mean, after all, he says, he doesn't say, Christ commands you to appoint elders. He says, I command you to appoint elders, to which I reply, true. Paul is the one commanding elders, but he is doing so as an inspired apostle as an authorized spokesman and representative of the Lord Jesus Christ who wrote scripture, he is commanding that. You see, if it's what Paul commands, it's because that's what Jesus commands him to command. And if it's what Jesus commands him to command, then it is authoritative and non-negotiable. At which point someone could argue, okay, well, sure, appoint elders if you wish, but this was kind of an ad hoc situation. I mean, this, this was just what worked best on the island of Crete. This is not a universal mandate for every church and every time and culture and and age and geographical region to have elders. I mean, there are other ways to do church leadership, Jared. Come on. And that's true. You could do it other ways. But the problem is that doesn't square with the biblical evidence, which is the only kind that matters. For instance, in the first church that ever existed on the face of the planet, namely in Jerusalem, they had elders, Acts 15.2. In every single church that Paul ever planted, he appointed elders, Acts 14.23. And then you look at the list of cities that are named in the New Testament, Ephesus, Philippi, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and according to James, every single church that was scattered across the entirety of the empire, every single one of those churches had Elders, think about this. We are talking about different churches in different cities, on different countries, in different continents, in different decades, and every single one of those churches had elders, which tells us this isn't just a Crete thing. This is a universal church thing. Appoint elders because that is the model of the scriptures. Now, I know probably what you're thinking um, look, Jared, there's, there's lots of churches that don't do elder leadership and they do something else instead. And that's true. And nobody, especially not me, I'm, I'm not saying that they aren't true churches and that Christ doesn't use them for the Great Commission because uh, Christ will and does use any church that is faithful to his word. And he has done that for centuries. Any church that he uses is always despite the church, right? I'm just saying the only leadership model modeled and commanded in the New Testament is plurality of elders. Elders are in the blueprints for a healthy church. That is not insignificant. But this raises the question, doesn't it? Okay, well, what exactly are elders in the church to be and do? I mean, I don't know why anyone would do this, but if someone stopped you on the street and, and I mean, this is not really the hot topic of the culture right now, but let's say that it was that you got stopped on the street and they stuck a microphone in your face and they said, okay, do you believe in, in, in elders in the church? Yes, I do. What is it exactly that elders are to be and do in the church? Could you tell them? Would you know? I mean, other than general 
kind of you know broad categories of leadership do you know what elders are called to be and do in the local church and i think we really got to get to the bottom of this because lots of people have no idea what leaders elders are to be and do and lots of people have wrong expectations of what elders are to be and do so we have got to get to the bottom of this which brings us by the way observation number four the weighty responsibilities of elders the weighty responsibilities of elders now you notice in the text that Paul doesn't actually tell Titus what elders are to be and do. And he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to do that because Paul and Titus have been working together for the last 20 years of ministry. And so an in-depth explanation of what elders are to be and do in this letter is completely unnecessary. But when you step back a little bit and you look at the New Testament and all that it says about elders and what they are to be and to do, it becomes very, very clear exactly what that is. For instance, did you know that the terms elder and pastor in the New Testament are synonymous and interchangeable? Did you know that? It's true. It's true. In the New Testament, they are the exact same thing. I mean, some elders are full-time and paid. And others are volunteer, but other than that, the Bible doesn't make any distinctions between the two. Elders are pastors, and pastors are elders. When you tell people about our church, you don't say, well, we have a pastor. No, we have four pastors, five total pastors. We have five pastors. I should know this. I do know this. You see, elders are pastors, and pastors are elders, and they are all equally appointed to shepherd the flock of God. Their work is pastoring. Now, it's true. It's true. Elders at times, at times in different seasons, are called to take on heavy administrative loads, and your elders here have done a fair share of that over the last several months, building projects and budgetary burdens and fundraisers and logistical concerns, nitty-gritty nursery issues, wheelchair ramps, you name it, it has to be done. And to be sure, there are seasons when elders are called to do those kinds of things temporarily, Elders are not above doing those things. I'm just saying that is not the biblical vision for what elders are to be and to do. I mean, I worked with an elderly senior pastor right after seminary whose ideas about what it meant to be a pastor elder were well-intentioned, I suppose, but severely misguided to the degree that he almost single-handedly wiped his own church out of existence and probably would have done so if he had not have retired just in the nick of time. I mean, he studied a little, I guess. He preached on Sundays. He did some counseling, but his his days were, were largely consumed with phone calls and vacuuming and writing cards and changing the sprinklers and making Christmas baskets and obsessing over the furnace and, and, and micromanaging, micromanaging the storage closet in the youth room. Now, I'm not saying those things don't matter because in their own way, they profoundly do matter. Those things have to be done. I'm just saying I am thoroughly unconvinced on biblical grounds that those are the kinds of things by which an elder should be preoccupied. And of course, that raises the question, okay, wise guy, 
if you're so smart, well, what is it exactly that elders are to be and do? And guess what? I've got a list in no particular order. Matthew 28, 19, elders make disciples. John 21, elders feed the flock. Acts 20, 28, 1 Peter 5, 2, elders shepherd the flock. Acts 6, 4, elders devote themselves to the word of God and to prayer. Matthew 18, elders do church discipline. 1 Timothy 4.13, elders exhort and teach the word. Colossians 1.28, elders teach and admonish to make you mature. Hebrews 13.17, elders keep watch over your souls. Ephesians 4.12, elders equip the saints for the work of ministry. Titus 1.10, elders rebuke and silence false teachers. 2 Timothy 2.15, elders accurately handle the word of truth. 2 Timothy 4.2, elders preach the word in season and out of season. James 5.14, elders pray for and care for suffering members. And 2 Timothy 2.2, elders train future leaders who will eventually replace them. Don't you see? Don't you see? Every single thing in that list has to do with the ministry of the word of God. The essence of elder work is truth work. Elders are brokers of the word of God. It's incredible. The work of an elder is fundamentally a word-centered work. The work of an elder is fundamentally a theological work. Pastor elders are shepherd theologians who shepherd and strengthen your souls with the word of God. I'm not saying we here are perfect. I'm just saying that is what the text says. Elders are at the same time gourmet chefs that feed you with the word. They are personal trainers who help you get spiritually in shape with the word. They are physicians of the soul who help repair and heal you with the word. And they are security guards who protect you with the word. And sometimes they must even protect you from yourselves, which is why that thing called church discipline exists, a loving and gracious process to protect you. So my challenge for you, Christ community, I have a challenge for you. It's for you to remember that shepherding you and caring for you and instructing you and leading you and discipling you, you have to understand all of that is a two-way street. It's a two-way street. What I mean is the elders here at this church, we need you to be F-A-T. We need you to be F-A-T. We need you to be faithful. We need you to be available and we need you to be teachable. So the question is, can you be faithful? Can you be faithful, however imperfect that is, struggles though there may be, can you be faithful by God's grace to pursue Jesus Christ as the treasure of your soul? And can you be faithful to let us know when you're struggling and how we can help you? Because we can't shepherd you if we don't know what's going on in your life. We try to get to you. We're gonna try to get to you, but but you gotta come to us. And we want to help you. No one's here to crush you or destroy you. We want to help you live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. Can you be faithful to that? Number two, can you be available? 
Can you be available? And I don't merely mean church attendance, although I'm including that too. I mean, can you see from the Bible that it's not the pastor's job to do all the work, but the pastor's job is to equip and train you to do the work of ministry? And can you see that the primary ministry to which you are called is the intentional word-centered investment of the word of God into the lives of one another? Did you know that authentic church health is not measured by its programs, but by the commitment of each member to make the spiritual health of one another their top priority? I hope you know that because that's exactly where we're going. And then finally, number three, can you be teachable? Can you be teachable? Can you be, and this is the most important question of all, but are you willing to let the word of God change anything about your lives and this church if it hinders the Great Commission? Are you willing to be that? To let anything in your lives or anything in this church change if it hinders the Great Commission. And I know that's a scary thing to ask, but are you willing to be teachable and submit your lives and this church under the authority of the proclamation of the Word of God? Because I'll just tell you, the happiest, most joyful, and most effective churches in the world are not those with a bunch of sacred cows who refuse to change, but those who are willing to change anything if they can't find a reason from the Bible to justify its existence. Can you be faithful? Can you be available? Can you be teachable? Because that's, that's what the elders need from you, which brings us, last but not least, observation number five, the blamelessness of elders. The blamelessness of elders. Look at verses five and six together. For this reason, Titus, I left you behind in Crete. Why? In order that you would set in order the things which remain and you would appoint elders in every church, every city, just as I commanded you. And who is eligible to serve as an elder? Verse six, if any man is blameless. Stop right there. Do you see what Paul's doing? After he tells Titus, to appoint elders in every church, he begins to unfold in verses six through nine the qualifications a man must have before he can serve as an elder. You see, to serve in the elder, serve as an elder in the local church for the advance of the Great Commission, there are some very rigid strings attached, 15 of them to be exact. And those 15 strings are 15 qualifications, 15 requirements that absolutely non-negotiably must be in a man's life before he can serve as an elder in the local church. Because again, it does not matter how dynamic, well-spoken, persuasive, educated, influential, successful, wealthy, or confident a man may be. Those things by themselves do not an elder make. If a man's life doesn't have these 15 qualifications. That dude might be qualified to lead the country, but he ain't qualified to lead the church. Let me put it to you this way. The Christ-exalting success of a church 
or the Christ-defaming failure of a church is first and foremost dependent upon the quality of the men you have in leadership. Why? Because as go the shepherds, so go the sheep. And here's the thing about these qualifications. You can tell there's 15 of them. If you read the list, there's 15 total. But here's the thing about them. The first qualification on the list, you notice that it is to be blameless. Here's the thing about that. That that is the overarching, all-inclusive qualification that includes all of the rest. In other words, blameless is the overarching one. It includes all the rest. And the rest, the following 14 qualifications, explain what it means to be blameless. Let's put it this way. Men, can you be an elder in this church? Absolutely. Of course you can. If you are blameless, well, how do you know what it looks like to be blameless? The 14 following qualifications in verses 6 through 9 that explain what it means to be blameless. And we're going to get to those qualifications in the next three sermons. But if you have these in your life and they are increasing, you are blameless. And if you are blameless, then by biblical definition, you are eligible, qualified to serve as an elder. But here's the other thing about these qualifications. I need, I need, I need you to hear this. Um, what you need to hear about these qualifications is how hauntingly relevant they are to every person sitting in this room. To every person sitting in this room. And the reason why I say that is because someone might hear, okay, we're going to spend three weeks on, on elders and I'm never going to be an elder. That's really not kind of my thing. And, and so we might as well just go to a different church for the next three weeks. And or I'm just going to kind of tune out for the next three weeks and, because this is not about me. To which I reply, not so fast. Not so fast. Because even if it's not in the cards for you to be an elder one day, and by the way, by the way, let's just, let's just get this out there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain next week why it is that men alone are eligible to be elders and, and women are, are not called to that. I'm gonna explain all that. But, but even if you're never gonna be an elder necessarily, you need to know that these qualifications mean everything for your life. They mean everything for your life. Do you know why? Get this, because every single qualification on the list is required for all Christians and they are commanded for all Christians other places in the New Testament. Does that make sense? All the qualifications listed here, those are required for all Christians everywhere in other places of the New Testament. For instance, did you know that every single person who belongs to and has been saved by Jesus Christ is called to be blameless? Did you know that? 1 Corinthians 1.8 says you are all to be blameless. Colossians 1.22 says that Christ died to make you holy and blameless. Philippians 2, 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? In order that you would become blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among among whom you appear as lights in the world. All of you are called to be blameless. So everything Paul says that it is that makes someone blameless profoundly applies to you. And this raises the question, and I essentially close with this. 
But we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be blameless? Because if being blameless is a really big deal, and it is, and if it's required for elders, and it is, and if every person in the church is called to be blameless, and they are, then we have to get to the bottom of what it means to be blameless. And and the term is really interesting. That term blameless is literally the term you would use in an ancient court of law. It it means that, that there's no evidence against you. There's no charge that can legitimately be brought against you. And and Paul's use of the term is, is profound. Because what he means, get this now, what he means is that an elder's life is so radically transformed by sovereign grace that when all the facts are in, not one area of his life can legitimately bring Christ, the church, or the global cause of Christ into public disrepute. It means there are no scandals. There are no secrets. There are no skeletons. There's no shame. There's there's nothing hidden. There's nothing to hide. To be blameless is to have a radically transformed, albeit imperfect life that by sovereign grace through the word puts Christ on display. In other words, to be a blameless man, hear what I'm about to say, to be a blameless man means that there is something about that man's life that smells like eternity. That there is something about that man that has the aura of the transcendent. That it is so, so obvious to everyone who knows him that like Moses up on the mountain, that man has been long and often in communion with the living God. Man, is that the kind of life you have? Is there an aura about the transcendent when people talk to you? Does your life smell like eternity? Now again, let's be clear about this. This doesn't mean this doesn't mean that there aren't occasional lapses or struggles or inconsistencies in a man's life for which he needs to repent and seek the power of Christ to change because even the way a blameless man deals with his sin is part of what it is that makes him blameless. But what it does mean that a man is blameless is that there are no hidden patterns or secrets in his life that would in any way bring his God, his life, his church, or his mission into public disrepute. In fact, get this, to be a blameless man not only means that you avoid every evil, but you avoid even every appearance of evil. It means that he works really, really hard to take every precaution that he can to conduct himself in such a way so as to not even raise the possibility of suspicion. For instance, I still can't get the picture out of my head of a pastor I once knew years ago who I saw continually giving back rubs to pretty girls in the congregation. Maybe it was nothing. Maybe it was something. But either way, It wasn't blameless. So the question is, current elders, future elders, and everybody in this room, do you have a blameless life? Do you have a blameless life? What I mean is, is there anything hidden in your life that if exposed, it would bring your life or this church or the Great Commission into public disrepute? 
What I mean is, is your life so radically transformed by sovereign grace through the word that when all the facts are in, not one area of your life can legitimately bring Jesus Christ into disrepute? What I'm asking is, you don't have a secret life of shame, do you? Because I just want you to know that, that if you're struggling, that's, that's why the elders are here. We want to help you. We know that sin is a tyrant and a monster, and we are not here to destroy you or condemn you. We are here to shepherd you and help you and labor in the trenches, in the grime of life with you. And so please, please come to us if you're struggling. We want to help you. Again, I'm not asking if you're sinless. I'm asking if you're blameless. Because although being sinless in this life is not possible, being blameless in this life is profoundly possible. Why? Well, it's possible only if you truly belong to Jesus Christ. Only if you're really a Christian. That's the only way that you can be blameless. Why? Because Jesus Christ purchased with his death everything you need to live a blameless life that puts him on display. Christ purchased with his death everything you need to obey everything that God commands. More about how this works in the coming weeks, but I essentially close with this. Um, if you're not a Christian, if you don't belong to Christ here this morning, um, if you've been fooling yourself and fooling others for years about the true state of your soul, I just want you to know that you don't have to fake it anymore. You don't have to fake it. You, you can have the real thing. You, you can have that. You can have not only forgiveness for the sins of the past, the permanent deletion of your sinful criminal record. You can have that, you know, in Christ, you can have not only that, but you can have all the power you need to overcome sin and temptation in the future. You can have that. Christ bought that for you. You can have a new heart. You can be born again. You can be freed and liberated from your sins. You can have eternal life. You can be reconciled to God as the treasure of your soul. If you confess, if you confess right now, if you confess that you are bankrupt and you have nothing to offer God except the sins that need to be forgiven, if you're willing to bow in allegiance to the king, if you're willing to lay down the weapons of rebellion and wave the white flag of surrender and give yourself to the all-satisfying custody of Jesus Christ, if you are willing to have him be the God and King and Savior and treasure of your soul, if you are willing to comply with those terms, you can have everything Jesus Christ purchased free of charge, no strings attached, purchased and paid for in full, and then and only then will you have the power to live a blameless life that puts him on display. My question is, why on earth would you settle for anything other than that? Let's pray. O oh Christ, the standards are lofty 
And no one claims, Lord, no one claims that on their own they have what it takes to be the kind of leader, to be the kind of Christian, oh Lord, that your word commands us to be, Lord. Lord, we understand, we understand that you have called us to labor for that which is yours alone to give, that the most basic goals of the Christian life are unquestionably beyond our reach. Oh Lord, we are a needy people here this morning. We are desperate. We don't have, we don't have any of the internal components that we need to do anything that you command. In other words, we are desperate. Spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. Thank you for this church, Lord. Thank you for this church. You love this church. You love this city and the various cities and places where all the people from this church live. You, you love it all and you want what's best for them and what's best for them is the full, unhindered enjoyment of your glory and the pursuit of your mission to the world. Thank you for this church. Comfort them, encourage them, help them, strengthen them, give them hope, O oh Lord, give them hope, give them courage to pursue the mission with reckless abandon. Strengthen us with your word and may you and you alone receive all the glory. And it's in the name of the matchless Son of God that we pray. Amen.